Thank you, Sister Ruth, for that beautiful song. I don't think I've ever heard that song before. It's beautiful. Appreciate. Turn with me to First Chapter Three, First John Chapter Three. If if you're not a regular here, you may not know. We uh, on Sunday nights it's our practice. We on First John. I don't remember when we started. I have no idea when we'll end. But uh, we're. First, uh, second, John, as the Lord allows us. I have to confess. If the Lord would send an angel and preach tonight's message. Now, that would be true of every sermon. I do not ever worthy to stand behind the sacred desk. But there are certain passages of Scripture that I really, really wish that a wiser, more intelligent man or woman were standing here in my place. If I had heard that Dr. Brown or Dr. Cooley or doctor just about anybody but me, uh, and I'm not a doctor, but uh, we're going to be preaching on this passage. I would, I would want to hear it because I'll be honest with you, as I studied several commentators and looked at the original Greek and I read other great preachers, uh, their sermons on this passage. I have come to this great conclusion. I'm too stupid to preach on this subject. Nevertheless, nevertheless, God has laid this book on my heart, and I'm going to do my very best to rightly divide the word of truth. And so I, I freely confess I'm not the best man for this job. But I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful. If I just stand with me for the reading of God's Word, 1 John chapter 3. And we begin in verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this, the children of God are manifest, and that the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness, is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for John. 
the words that he shared with us. And tonight, what John said is, many have stumbled over and struggled with. Lord, I ask that you would help me not to preach my own ideas, my own thoughts, but that I would preach the thoughts of the Holy Spirit. And that tonight, that we would be true and faithful to your word. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you've ever been there. Someone has offered you a chocolate chip cookie. You may not know this, but I enjoy a good chocolate chip cookie. There's no evidence of that anywhere. But I, I love to be in the, the, the platter of chocolate chip cookies are handed over and said, Pastor or husband or, or Jeremy, whatever they call me, they say, would you like a cookie? And I will, of course, say yes. And so I will take one of those cookies and hopefully I have a, a, a cup of hot coffee and I'll dip that chocolate chip cookie into that coffee and bite into it. And oh no, it's not chocolate chip cookie, it's oatmeal raisin. Now I don't mind an oatmeal raisin cookie, but when I expected chocolate chip and I bite into it and find it to be oatmeal raisin. There is a disappointment. Even Morgan knows. No, don't do that. <laughs> Give me a heads up. It's oatmeal raisin. I'll still eat it. I enjoy oatmeal raisin. But when I'm expecting chocolate chip cookies, I want chocolate chip cookies. Don't you? That's never happened to anybody else, I'm sure. But to bite into that chocolate chip cookie and to get oatmeal raisin is a disappointment. Not because oatmeal raisin is bad. Not because it isn't good. But because it wasn't what I expected. If we go out to the Apple tree. Now, I don't know. Do you all, I don't, you all don't have apple trees like we do back home in Michigan. We have orchards back home. And I mean, we've got cider mills. And I, I mean, as a boy, I remember we had an old, uh, a, a friend of my mother's had uh, a homemade cider press. And as a young person, I remember pressing cider of apples that we had picked. And we drank cider until we were literally sick. It was wonderful. Not the sick part. <laughs> but we, we grew up with, with apple trees and, and, and orchards. And in fact, my wife's grandmother or grandparents who live in Pennsylvania, they had their own apple orchard. Grandpa's gotten old and he's kind of let it go. But apple orchards are, are common place back home in Michigan and you know, you go out to the orchard to get apples. And you know, I have never once seen oranges on the apple trees, especially in Michigan. When you go out to the apple tree, you expect, come fall time, that there are going to be apples on that tree and on the ground around that tree. The expectation is that the apple tree will produce apples. It won't produce oranges. It won't produce 
uh, pomegranates. It's not going to produce any other kind of fruit. Your expectation is that it's going to produce apples. When you plant your fields, you plant your gardens, the seeds that you plant, the plants come up, you expect what you planted. It's the expectation. And in our scripture, John is trying to help us to understand that God has an expectation of his children. An expectation is that his children will live above sin. That's his expectation. He comes to, to our life and, and he begins to search the, uh, the, the tree of our, of our life and, and to see if it's producing the fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and gentleness, patience, self-control. If we are manifesting those fruits, or if we're manifesting bitterness and unforgiveness, hatred and malice, the expectation is that we will produce, if we are God's children, good fruit. The reason that that God expects that is because He made provision for that. If you see here, John says that Jesus, he call, it says He, but he's referencing Christ, that Jesus was made manifest so that we would not sin. And then he goes on and he says, that we abide in Christ, we will not sin. In fact, he goes on to say he cannot sin. But who's right? Is it possible? Is it impossible? Is it impossible, Rocky, for a Christian to sin? John says he cannot sin. Hmm. There's a struggle, isn't it? Because we know Christians, people who had the, the, a good testimony and a person who had the witness of the Spirit, and we've seen, and, and we, their Spirit bore witness with our Spirit, that they were a child of God, and we've seen them fall away. We've seen them sin. So experience tells us John's not right. They can sin. Well, let's go beyond experience. What does John himself say over, or just earlier in the book? He said, if any man sin, he has an advocate with the Father. Right? Well, if he cannot sin, why does he need an advocate? Perplexing, isn't it? Is this one of those contradictions of Scripture? Here John is, he can't even keep it straight in his own little tiny book of 1 John. It's not even that big, John. What's the real matter with you? So 
So here's what happens. We begin to try to explain things away. And so here's what, what, what many have done, and this is, this is, this is popular, whether uh, you're Baptist or even in some of uh, uh, holiness churches, Wesleyan Arminian churches, they will say what John is saying is that a Christian does not habitually sin. In fact, many modern translations have added the word habitually to this passage. Well, let's go to the Greek. Is habitually there? Is that any, is, is habitual uh, sin? Is that, is that anywhere indicated in the original Greek? And I have to be honest with you, I did the, I'm not a Greek scholar, but what, I tried to find something that would indicate habitual sin being indicated here, and I could not find it. Well, if experience tells me that they can sin then I have a problem because Jesus has provided that we don't sin and it says we cannot sin. We know people do sin. So what does it mean? Well, some have said that if you do sin, then you never were saved in the first place. Well, there's a good way to understand it. Now, I think this is a little less dangerous than the habitual sin theory. I think it's dangerous when we start explaining away scriptures and we start adding words that are not there and never intended. So you never were saved. Well, does that match up with scripture? Not really. I, I think about the apostles when they were disciples. Did they, were they saved? Absolutely. Here they are. They're casting out demons. They're healing people. They're, they're doing all sorts of marvelous works for God. Do they sin? Well, Peter certainly does. He denies the Lord three times. He goes on and is calling down curses. Was he never saved? Was he casting out demons as an unsaved man? Well, that doesn't make sense to me. What about Demas? Demas has forsaken me. Did Paul carry around on his missionary journey this unsaved man who, who thought he was saved and might be saved but really wasn't? And, and, and Demas went on and, and, and no longer is sa never was saved and he was preaching with Paul? Does that make sense? That, that Paul would not have discernment that this man had never been saved? Does that make sense to us this evening? Hmm. So experience in Scripture tells us that this can't be right either, even though it's the doctrine of five-point Calvinist. Okay, so scripturally, we can't, we, we can't go with habitual. We can't find that word habitual anywhere. No reason to think that. We can't, we can't use, we can't use that never were saved. What's the solution to this problem? We don't look at the entirety of the passage and, and understand what, what John is trying to say to us. And this is why there's so much debate and so much frustration over this passage. There is a prerequisite to not being able to sin that John gives us. And this is, I think, the, the important, most important 
clause in this passage to help us understand it. And if we don't have this part, we're going to run into all, all sorts of theological error. And it's this. Anyone who abides in Him. If we are abiding in Him, if we are abiding in Christ, then we cannot sin. If we are abiding in Him, now what did Jesus tell us to do in John? He said, abide in me. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He made a definitive call to His disciples to abide in Him. Why is it important to abide in Him? Well, because He's the life source. If I were to go out to one of these trees and, and I were to take one of the limbs and, and I were to cut it off, eventually that limb will die. The tree won't die. The limb will die. The tree is the life source of the branches. And if we are not abiding in Christ, we are not connected to the source of our spiritual life. And so as soon as we decide, we make a move to no longer abide in Christ, we sever that, we cut ourselves off from abiding in Christ, immediately what happens? We lose protection from sin. We lose our protection from sin. You cannot sin while simultaneously abiding in Christ. This is what John is trying to help us understand. It is impossible to sin while abiding in Christ. Those who teach that saints, that saved people, have the, uh, they sin in word, thought, and deed, are not understanding that you have to abide in Christ. And abiding in Christ makes sin impossible. If I, if I want to sin as a Christian, all I have to do is step out to unplug myself, to cut myself off from the source of spiritual life. And if Satan wants to get me to sin, if, if I'm abiding in Christ and, and I'm dwelling in the fullness of the Spirit, I am walking in the light, and Satan wants me to sin, this is what he's got to do first. He's got to first get me to no longer abide in Christ. Now here's where the problem is. So many of us believe that sin is what separates us from abiding in Christ. Sin separates, separates us from God. But before we can sin, we have to first no longer abide in Christ. Now how do we do that? How do we separate? How do we lose our, uh, our abiding in Christ. Well, the first way that we do that is we stop having relationship with Him. 
We stop having a relationship with him. If I am going to go out on my own, and I appreciated what Trace testimony tonight, he's hit this perfectly. If you believe that you're going to go out of these doors and live above sin in your own strength and in your own power, I've got news for you. You won't make it very long. Satan knows your weak places. He knows my weak places. He knows the areas of my life that I, that I would be tempted in. I remember we were, and I don't know why it was this way, but, but we, we were, when we, had, we attended a certain church and every single Sunday night, you know, we were, you're hungry after church Sunday night. At least we are. We don't usually eat before church on a Sunday night. We're hungry. And we had to drive by the McDonald's. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm not a big fan of McDonald's personally. I, I prefer just about any other fast food place to, to McDonald's. That's just my preference. If you want to go to McDonald's, I'll go with you. There's stuff there that I like. If they have the McRib, then I'm really tempted. That I like the McRib. I'm not sure that is any rib meat there at all. But anyhow, I do like it. <laughs> I haven't tried their new, I think the quarter pounders are new. So I haven't tried that. So this, and no judgment on their new meat. Okay, I, ha, I don't know I'm just trying to help illustrate. As we drove by every Sunday night, we're all hungry. The boys were just little, just little, little. I don't think Aliana was even born. And invariably, the boys would ask me, can we stop at McDonald's? They were tempted by the aromas wafting out of that McDonald's on a Sunday night. And I want to tell you something. I was tempted. He who would rather go to almost any other fast food place that you can think of. Be like, oh. Just what I want. A nice, dry, cold burger. With way too much salt on frozen fries. not the way that it, that, that's not the what was going through my mind, was it? I was picturing a juicy burger and the hot fries scrubbing right out of, uh, out of the vat that was, and, and, and being correctly salted. My memory of what McDonald's produced in that moment was way better than they've ever given me. Satan knew He knew that I was hungry every single Sunday night. I want you to know we never slowed down the car. We didn't fall. We'd tell the boys, we have stuff at home. This is the Lord's Day. We don't want to buy or sell on the Lord's Day. Still believe in honoring the Sabbath. And you know what? I sometimes... Sometimes when the, Satan would tempt me, I'd say, Satan, what are you tempting me for? You know I'm not going to go and stop at McDonald's. And I, and I can almost hear him say, just checking. <laughs> just checking. 
But you know what? There was another time in that when we lived in the same city, I was walking on the sidewalk, and someone had in their hands drugs. And he asked me, he said, you want, a, you want some? I want you to know the devil didn't have any opportunity to tempt me because drugs have no pull on me. Because I've never had them. If I'd ever smoked one, if I'd ever injected that stuff, it would perhaps have a hold on me. Maybe Satan could use that to pull me in. But when he offered me that, he might have been, he could have offered me a pile of manure for all that was to me. It had no effect except for repulsion. There's no temptation. But Satan knows your weak spots, and he knows my weak spots. But I want to tell you something. Jesus, what came, and, and this is what John's trying to help us understand Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy, what are the works of the devil? The works of the devil are his entanglements, the chains that he holds us in. That's his works. And Jesus came so that we wouldn't have to be entangled in our own sin. But we have to abide in him. And we first, we first lose that relationship, we lose that abiding by not being in relationship. By being too busy to pray and too busy to read and study. That we make our devotions a duty and, and not a love affair. You know, when we were dating in Penview, they had all sorts of crazy rules. But one of the rules that they, they had, this was maybe a good rule, that in the evenings we could swap letters. And our letters would go down, the, whoever the monitor was, he'd take the, the letters uh, from the guys to the girls, and they'd, go to the, and they'd meet the girls from, from the girls' dorm, that they'd swap them. And of course, you know that the deans were checking out who was writing who. Because I wanted to know who was liking who. But on those, those evenings, when the letters would be exchanged, and I would have one that had my name on it, and I knew that at the bottom of that letter would be the signature of my girlfriend. When I got back to my dormitory without envelope sealed, of course, so no snooping eyes could see it, you know what I did? I went and I opened my desk drawer, I threw it in with the rest, closed it up, and went to bed, and, and probably didn't read it for, you know, six, seven weeks. Right? You don't think I did that? I think you all know me too well. No, I didn't do that. Every single night, except for maybe one when I was deathly ill... I read that letter within moments of receiving it. And you know, I almost always read it twice, just in case I mess, missed a juicy part in the first time through. 
I wanted to know everything she had to say to me. And I wanted to know it as soon as I had my hands on it. And the privacy of my own room, where snoopy eyes wouldn't be looking over my shoulder, I wanted to spend some time with the writings of the one that I love. How much more with our Savior, who has written for us a love letter. We separate ourselves from the source that allows us, no better than that, makes it where we cannot sin when we cease having relationship. We can lose relationship, we can cut off relationship when there's a battle of wills. Now I'm going to tell you that even the sanctified person will wrestle with God sometimes. I know some people teach that when you get sanctified, you won't, don't have a will at all. That's nonsense. God doesn't take your will. And, then, and when I talk to parents, I tell them, parents, you're not conquering your child's will. You cannot conquer their will. And if you could conquer it, that'd be awful. You don't want to conquer their will. What you want to do is you want to bend that will towards God. You don't want to conquer it because if you can conquer it, someone else can conquer it. And this is a person that will do whatever they're told. Not long ago, someone had gotten themselves into trouble in a situation. And this was their words. This is what I get for being a follower. They were a follower, not a leader, and they could have stood up and said, you know, this isn't right, this is wrong, but they didn't, and now they were paying the consequences for the choices that they made because they didn't have the will to say no. I don't want my children to lose the ability to say no. I want them to lose the ability to say no to me. Okay? I want them to lose the want to, to say no to me to God and to those in authority. But I want them to be able to say no to the devil and to, to those that influence them to wrong. And how do I do that? By bending the will towards God. Sometimes we're going to wrestle with the will of God. Because, you know, sometimes God asks us to do things that doesn't make sense and things that, 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 that we don't want to do. When, it, when I asked, I, I, I didn't even know anything about here except for that, that Brother Gary was, was talking to us. And I said, uh, you know, I just said to, to Trish, I said, honey, what do you think about Kansas? She said, I'm not going to Kansas. <laughs> Might have been that loud. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, you just don't know her as well as I do. She had set her feet, she had set her will, and this is what I said in my heart. It must not be God's will for me to even really consider Kansas because Trisha is not even willing, and if she was, if she was willing, then God would have made, uh, if, God, if, if this is what God wanted us to do, God would have made her willing, because I know she's sanctified and that her heart would be yielded to God. And I dismissed really put out of my mind coming out here because she had said she's not going. And I wasn't coming out here without her. 
happened? As soon as she said that, God the Holy Spirit said, Oh, yes, are. <laughs> and here I am, I'm thinking it's not God's will. I'm trying to find God's will and, and, and trying to find the open doors and find what God would have us to do. And God's already told her, you better get your will surrendered to me because this is what's going to happen. Do you know what the sanctified heart does? The sanctified heart says, yes, Lord. I don't like it. I don't want to leave my family. I don't want to leave my friends. I don't want to leave my culture. And you have a different culture than New York does. If you don't know that, you might want to go and hang out in New York for a little while. You'll feel like you're in a foreign country. Jimmy knows. You've been out there. It's a different culture, isn't it? Everything's different. But the sanctified heart says, not my will, but thine be done. But when you're still wrestling with God about whether you're going to do what He wants you to do or not, you're separating yourself from the source that keeps you from sinning. As long as you're saying, I'm not going, as long as you have your will set against God's, you're in danger. You're in danger of sinning. And here's why. Here's why. Because you know God's will, and you're saying, I really don't want to do it. And as long as there's a longing in your heart to do what's not God's will, you're separated from the source. Separated from the source. If we want to be connected, if we want to abide in Him, we're going to have to be yielded to Him. We're going to be yielded to Him. And as long as we're not yielded, we're not getting the spiritual nutrition to stay alive. Sin will cut us off. Sin will cut us off. This, there's another way that we can, become, we can get outside of abiding in Christ, and I think this was a little harder to perhaps to explain and not one that we often talk about. But when we dwell in dryness, when we dwell in dryness. Now let me, let me t try to help us to understand this. We all go through seasons of spiritual dryness. We all go through times when reading our, uh, our Bibles and praying and going to church feels like a chore and not a blessing. There are times when we are doing uh, our very best to mind God. We're, maybe we're even testifying. We'll put a hand up in the song service. But we're doing everything we can to, to claim the victory but inside we're dry. 
And you're not a hypocrite, okay? Let, let, let me just dispel that right now. Just because you put your hand up when you're not feeling it, just because you testify when you're not feeling it, doesn't mean you're a hypocrite. It means that you're holding on to the means of grace and you're making yourself available for a blessing. When you've prayed for rain, it's not hypocritical to carry an umbrella with you. Even if the forecast doesn't say that there's any rain. Okay? But when we but here's the thing. That if we are connected to the source, even in our dryness, there will always be spiritual nutrition. There will be oasises. There will be times when God will give us something. But here's what happens so oftentimes in prolonged dryness. We sense that we're not getting enough from God. And so we separate ourselves in order to seek out our own way. How do you know that you're in one of those places? Well, one of the, one of the ways that you know that is when you don't want to do what you know you're supposed to do. When you don't want to read your Bible, when you don't want to pray, when you don't feel like testifying and you don't feel like asking your neighbor to come to church or you don't feel like and you fill in whatever it is any of these any of our spiritual disciplines you don't feel like fasting you don't feel like and you fill in the blank and you say I just don't feel like it you're probably experiencing dryness what do you do when you're experiencing Prolonged spiritual dryness. You stay connected to the source. You can you pray and you say, God, I don't feel like praying. And I don't even feel like you're listening to me. But I'm going to keep talking to you whether you, you're listening to me or not. I'm going to still keep talking. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep believing you. And if you don't answer me till I die, I'm going to keep trusting in you. I'm going to keep calling on your name. And you're going to, you don't feel like it. It's been a long time since you testified. You say, you know, I'm standing on principle. I want you to know it's been, we're going through a dry season, but here's one thing I know. I'm still saved and I'm still connected to the source. And whether I feel another thing between here and eternity, I want you to know I'm not changing the way I live. You know what happens during... The drought season, your roots go down deeper. And when the winds blow and the storms come and Satan does his best to uproot you and drive you from the source, you will be so rooted that he cannot separate you. Those dry times are for our benefit and for our blessing. But we have to abide in Christ even in the midst of the dryness. Anxiety will help us to leave the abiding presence of Christ. We start worrying. How many times did Jesus tell us that we didn't need to worry? Do you know what? There's not a person here who probably hasn't worried at some point this week. 
And you know what happens is we get we struggle here. In fact, it was one of the questions that our this this week. Uh, the, and this is what I how I answered. Anxiety becomes wrong when we have taken that thing off from the altar. Hasn't rained in a little while. Dean says he, his corn needs rain. Is there some worry there? I don't know, probably. He says yes, good. I mean, not good, but... So Dean's got some anxiety over this corn. Is it mean he's disconnected? No, not necessarily. Does it mean that, that he's lost his salvation, that the devil's got him? No. When has it become wrong? It's when Dean says, God, if it doesn't rain, if you don't save my crops, then I'm not going to serve you. It's when the crops get taken off from the altar. When a mother or father worries so much about their children that they, that they don't have their children on the altar. There's a lot of folks that couldn't do what Susan did with Cameron. And we've kind of joked and teased with her a little bit. But the reason that Susan could let Cameron go, even though she probably didn't want to, is because Cameron on the altar. It doesn't mean there isn't worry, and it doesn't mean there isn't anxiety, and it doesn't mean that she doesn't long for the day that she gets to hold him and, and squeeze him tight and say, I, don't, I hope you never go anywhere again. <laughs> but the difference is, is that the child is on the altar. And it doesn't become wrong until we take it off the altar and say, I can't trust God with Cameron. I can't trust God with my corn. I can't trust God with my bills. I can't trust God with whatever it is that you're holding on to. That's when we separate ourselves from the source. And when we're no longer abiding in Christ, then we can now sin. We can now sin. We're no longer abiding in Christ. We're abiding in anxiety. You know, there's a lot of ways we can separate. We could go on and on. We can abide in our own opinions. You know, I think it's this way, and I think it's this way, and I think it's that way. We can abide in, in our... Uh, and our rebellion towards any authority that's popular right now. We can rebel against those that have their, our best interest in mind. I just was talking to a preacher. I can't remember. It was, I think it was earlier this month, I believe. He said, I was working with a lady. Her husband was beating her, mistreating her, ter- treating her awful. She was raised this way. And this is what she said to me. She said, everybody told me not to marry him. My church told me, my parents told me, my friends told me, everyone told me to, not to marry him, and I chose to marry him because they told me not to, and I wanted to go my own way. And now she's being abused and beaten by this man because she had to have her way. And he said, how do I work with her? How do I help her? She's going to have to get connected to the source. 
She's going to have to abide in Christ. Because she's got a long road to go now. Because her rebellion led her down a dangerous path. When we separate from the source, you say, Pastor, what do I do when I realize that I'm separated from the source? You just talk to God about it. Say, God, you know what? I haven't been, I haven't been in a relationship with you like I, like I should. I've been, I've been living by what I wanted to do and my own opinions and, and I, or whatever it might be. Lord, I haven't felt like doing what, what I know I'm supposed to do and, and I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do whether I feel like it or not. Whatever it is that spoke to you tonight, you make a commitment. We've been talking in the adult Sunday school class about marriage. Do you know marriage is very different than dating? In dating, everything is great and glorious. Even when we fought, disagreed with each other, which was almost never. Maybe once, twice, I don't even remember. They weren't a big deal. But do you know what happens after you get married? Not every day is fireworks. Not every day is excitement. I mean, some days you don't even get a firecracker. There's some days you go, you're married and it is nothing but hard work and trying to handle her emotions and my stubbornness. And her stubbornness too. <laughs> and there are days when there, when if you want to ask me how I feel about the marriage that day, you know what I'm going to say? It's hard work. And I have to be honest, Brother Rasmussen, I'm not real excited about today. Today was kind of miserable. Not today, today. But, okay. But this, this day was a hard day. She didn't agree with anything. I said, the sky's a beautiful blue. She said some weird color that isn't a color. It was like a plant or something. I don't know. I mean, everything I said she disagreed with. Do I say, you know what, it's not worth it and throw away the marriage because, because we, couldn't ha we had a bad day? Or we strung five, ten bad days in a row? And we didn't have any wonderful feelings? No, because we made a commitment. And have there been times that I've said dumb things that I wish I never would have said? Absolutely. I wish I could say I've never said something dumb to my wife. I wish I could say that I've never had a wrong tone of voice. I wish I could tell you that I've, I've never said one word that I've regretted. I can't say that. And you know what? She probably can't say that either. But you know what I can say? I've never wavered in my commitment. There's never been a day that I said, I've had it, and I'm done with this. Never. There have been days I thought I was close. There have been days when I've said, Lord, what did I do? <laughs> I 
But even in our hardest days, and our times when we thought that she couldn't be worse to me and I couldn't be worse to her, thank God we, we had Christ and we're saved. And I don't know how some people who don't have Christ and don't know how to fight with holy fights. I don't know, the holy fights is this. There is a sanctified way to argue. But I'm glad in the midst of that that the commitment holds. And in the midst of your relationship with Christ, there are going to be times when you are going to feel like he's not performing the way you expected him to. You expected that this dry season would be over by now. You expected that he would have answered that prayer by now. You've expected that he would have brought healing to the, uh, by now. You expected that he was going to come in and rescue you from this situation by now. You thought by now that he would have handled that, that situation and that family member. And, and you thought by now that, that God would have acted differently. You may have expected something different and God's different in the way that he's responding. And you're saying, I don't know what God's doing, but I'm committed. I'm committed. And our commitment, if it holds, despite feelings, and despite even perhaps our faith, because sometimes our faith can waver when feelings have been <laughs> have fallen and fallen to pieces. But we hold on to our commitment. We can abide in Him. And while we abide in Him, we cannot sin. And when God checks the tree of our life, He won't find bitterness and anger and sin and selfishness. But He'll find the fruits of the Spirit. When he takes a taste of our life, he won't find oatmeal raisin. He'll find chocolate chip. He'll find exactly what he expected to find in the child of God. That's what I want. I want for God to say he lived the way I expected him to live. The fruits of his life are the fruits I expected from the children of God. Let's stand together.